Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You know, I did kind of shoot myself in the foot with the title of this series. Music in the Islamic world is such an enormous category that covering it comprehensively would just take way too much time. But in this part two, I will do my best to cover in a very general sense the post-medieval period of music in the say Islamic world in a general sense and across a wide geographical area. There is a whole lot to cover here, but... All of it is very interesting and inspiring, so let's get to it. In part one, I talked about the earliest developments in music and in the Islamic world generally, from the earliest Arabic musicians like Ibn Misjah and the later the Andalusian Ziryab during the Abbasid times, as well as some of the great music theoreticians of the medieval period like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, and the Ikhwan al-Safa. I ended the episode by discussing the great music theorist and composer Safiya Din Urmawi from Baghdad and his monumental book called the Kitab al-Adwar where he systematizes music theory to a degree that no other had up to that point and he had a massive impact on the future trajectory of music in the Middle East and also also in sort of Central Asia and really a wider very wide geographical span generally from North Africa to to India And this is really where our story picks up. Um, If you remember what I said last time, music was almost exclusively an an oral thing at this time. But with Urmawi, we find some of the first examples of music notation. Now, there are some earlier people who have attempted to do very simple notations, like Al-Kindi, for example, 
he didn't write more than basic oud exercises. Um, but in Urmawi, we find much more comprehensive musical notation, even if in his case it wasn't that sophisticated either. It's really just a, a, a showcase of how one can write music notation, not so much a composition or a full song as such. But in the year following Urmawi, people would study, read and write commentaries on his great book, like, like the Kitab al-Adwar, and also develop the notation system that he... Um, that he presented and develop it even further. In the great Iranian polymath Qutbuddin al-Shirazi, famous as a great scientist and philosopher, we find a commentary on Urmawi's Kitab al-Adwar, but also a much more comprehensive example of music notation. In fact, Shirazi wrote down an entire composition by al-Urmawi himself in a notation system that is quite clever and which has been transposed into Western notation today. You can actually find this notation and play it if you want. I don't know where to find it, I've tried myself, but I know that it is out there somewhere. It's very fascinating. Qutbuddin Shirazi's notation system is very unique and significant. He made some clever innovations to Urmawi's system, uh, but strangely no one after him seems to have used this system. So, while Shirazi is an important historical figure for various reasons, including for his writings on music, he didn't influence the music tradition going forward to any huge degree either. Uh, but the same can definitely not be said for another, slightly later figure called Abdul Qadir al-Maraghi. Abdul Qadir al-Maraghi was born in Maraghi, in modern-day Azerbaijan. He was a master musician, but also a poet and painter, a kind of polymath in the cultural world. He stands at a very important crossroads in history, right at the transitionary period between the chaotic post-Abbasid centuries and the rise of the modern Islamic empires like the Ottomans, the Safavids and the Mughals. And Abdul Qadir's writings on music were immensely influential. He wrote several treatises on the subject, the most important of which is called Jami al-Alhan, which means something like the encyclopedia or collection of music. He also wrote a commentary on al-Urmawi's Kitab al-Adwar, as well as a Persian treatise by the name of Maqasid al-Alhan, which was supposedly dedicated to the Ottoman Sultan Murad II. And it is in this connection with the Ottoman Empire that is especially significant, because Abdul Qadir al-Maraghi became very influential and important for the later development of Ottoman music, which in itself is one of the most important periods for the development of what we know as Arabic and Turkish music today. What is also significant about Abdul Qadir al-Maraghi is that he, much like Shirazi and Urmawi, also wrote musical notations. But with al-Maraghi, this is the most comprehensive yet. In fact, this is where we get probably the first and best example of full songs and compositions, several of them notated in, in, a, in a way that can be easily read even today. And with him thus we get a couple of full compositions that survive even to this day. This makes him one of the earliest examples of proper music notation in the Islamic world and in the world generally. Some of the songs have become classics and one of the most popular ones is called Ahmed Nasi Misub Dem. And this is really where we get into the so-called gunpowder empires, the great empires of the modern period like the Ottomans, the Safavids and the Mughals, 
all of whom would develop music theory and musical practice forward in various different directions, as well as uh, developments also taking place in places like uh, Western North Africa as well, which was somewhat separated from these great empires. And all kinds of genres continued to be developed and played from more secular court music in, in the courts of the kings and the sultans to very religious and sacred music of the Sufis. I did talk briefly about Sufism in part one and said that I will make a separate video dedicated just to Sufi music, and this is still true, I still plan to do this, but when going forward here it will be impossible to talk about music without talking about Sufism also. In fact, from the 12th century or so onward, Sufism had become basically the majority expression of Islam, and would remain so up until around the 19th century. So, when we talk about music in the Islamic world from this point, it is often and usually deeply interconnected with the, or even direct, sort of a direct result of, the practice of the different Sufi orders. Sufi music greatly influenced more secular forms of music at this time, and also vice versa. In the Ottoman Empire, music became a great and important part of courtly life, religious life, and also just everyday life. Um, the music that was developed in the Ottoman regions, in particular in the capital of Istanbul, was greatly influenced by the writings and practice of some of these earlier uh, individuals that we have discussed. So this means that influence was taken from Persian music, but also from Arabic music and from more sort of local Anatolian and Turkish music. Early notable composers include the famous Cantemir and others, but a large bulk of the composers and important musical figures of the Ottoman Empire empires were actually the Sufis of various different orders, primarily those of the Mevleviya. The Mevleviya or Mevlevi order is a Sufi tariqa that was established in Konya around the teachings and personality of the very famous poet and master Jalal ad-Din Rumi. This order came to great prominence during Ottoman rule and was often accepted and greatly respected as a Sufi order with close contact with the Ottoman court. It was often seen as an orthodox Sufi order that stood firmly within the bounds of Islam and its law, often in contrast to other orders like, for example, the popular Bektashi order, which instead experienced kind of fluctuating periods of sometimes approval and sometimes disapproval and condemnation. But what is especially important for our discussion today is that the Mevlevi order has a very strong musical tradition. The ritual or ceremony that is called Sema, which has become very famous across the world due to the what is often called the whirling dervishes. Through this ritual, the Mevlevi order made music and what you could call a certain form of dance an important and central aspect of their religious practices. And during Ottoman times, the Sema would develop into quite a sophisticated art form or genre of music that produced some very prominent composers, both within the order itself, but also in the courts of the Ottoman sultans. The ritual itself, as we have said, is often called Sema, which derives from the Arabic word Sama, which means listening. It is a word that denotes all kinds of music-related rituals in Sufism, as well as some other rituals. And the particular musical composition or suite that is used in the Sama of the Mevlevi order is referred to as the Ayin. 
Being a musical suite, it is a longer musical movement that includes several independent sections, all of which are in the same maqam, or musical mode, kind of like a scale in Western terms. The entire sema ceremony can last up to an hour. So it's quite a long ceremony, and the music was written to, to fit within this larger uh, ceremony with various sections. It usually starts with a sung eulogy to the Prophet Muhammad, followed by a taqsim, which is an improvisation on the nay flute. After this, the musicians play a so-called peshrev, a composed instrumental piece. And the next step, then, is the ayin itself. So this is when the dervishes will remove their black robes and start whirling this very uh, characteristic dance. And while this is happening, the ayin, so-called, is sung with musical accompaniment and consists of four independent parts, all symbolizing different spiritual states. After this, there is usually another improvisation on the nay before the whole ceremony is closed through a recitation of the Quran. This, as you can tell, is a pretty complex and sophisticated musical structure, and all of it, with the exception of the improvisations, of course, were sometimes composed by a single master from the order. Some of these composers are still known, and many of their compositions still serve as the musical accompaniment for sema ceremonies today. They include figures like Mustafa Dede, Osman Dede, and one of the most important and famous, Ismail Dede Effendi. What is significant about these Sufi composers is that they were often close with the courts and also served as composers of secular court music as well. Indeed, aside from the spiritual music of the Sufi orders, there had developed a great tradition of court music in the Ottoman Empire as well. Of course, religious music was played in the court as well, but a lot of this music was more secular in nature. It was functioned as entertainment for the sultans and, and the other officials and members of the palace and the court. The ritual compositional suites of the Mevlevis are known, as I said, as Ayin, but similarly there developed very sophisticated musical suites in secular form, which became known as the Fasl. Just like the Ayin, the Fasel is also a long-form musical composition of various parts, and all of whom are in the same maqam, or musical mode. And indeed, whereas these two different forms of musical compositions, the Ayin and the Fasel, had become different categories by the 17th century, the two influenced each other to a great degree. The Mevlevi composers took inspiration from the Fasel music, the secular music, and vice versa. And as we've seen, the composers of these two forms of music were often also the same people. In the words of musicologist Walter Feldman, Quote, During the later 17th century, the composers of Ayin, such as Mustafa Dede, Osman Dede, and Mustafa Itri, were also composers of the courtly Fasl. But the courtly Fasl and the Mevlevi Ayin were already two distinct musical structures. The very varied Ottoman musical tradition, which took inspiration from various different sources and different traditions of music from within the Middle East and Central Asia, and to some degree also North Africa, is the basis and a very important point in the development of Middle Eastern music today. So 
you could say in a way that when we listen to Arabic or Turkish and also Persian music today, that owes a lot to the music of the Sufis. And in the Ottoman context, this was not only limited to the Mevlevi order. Some other major Sufi saints and personalities were involved in musical composition as well. Like, for example, Mahmud Huday, the founder of one of the other major Sufi orders in the Ottoman heartland, the Helveti order, as well as also being the sheikh of Sultan Ahmed I, who is famous for building the Blue Mosque. Instruments that were common in the Ottoman repertoire changed and varied across the centuries, of course, but common recurring ones include the Ney flute, particularly in the Mevlevi Sema, as well as the Saz, the Kemenche, a bowed instrument, as well as different percussion instruments, and of course the Oud. We must, however, of course, remember that the Ottoman Empire was large. The Ottoman Empire stretched, they ruled basically all of the western Middle East and large parts of North Africa as well as the Arabian Peninsula, including the Hejaz, which includes Mecca and Medina. And music in these various regions, of course, differed greatly as well. But what can be said about this period in general, this period of the Ottoman Empire, and thus also of the Safavids and the Mughals, is that this period is all very greatly responsible for the, you could say, the separation of what we call Persian music on one hand and Arabic and Turkish music on the other. It is from this point on that we start to see a kind of clearer distinction between these genres or, or forms of music. If you've been paying attention, you've probably noticed that, at least in the last episode when we talked about the Middle Ages, the categories of you know Arabic music and Persian music was very blurred. They, of course, came from different traditions originally, but from the 9th or 10th century onwards, they started to develop very much in harmony, you could say, uh, and, and the lines between these genres and traditions become very blurry for a while. Of course, there were many certain distinctions between them, as many of the writers affirm, including Al-Kindi, for example, but at the same time, there was an increasing sense of a common framework upon which all of it was based, which we can see very clearly in figures like Al-Urmawi, for example. But with the arrival of the so-called gunpowder empires, the Ottomans and the Safavids in particular, there was now an increasing political and cultural boundary between the larger Persian region, largely ruled by the Safavids, and the Arabic and Turkish-speaking regions, mostly ruled by the Ottomans. So, from this point on, we see an increasing distinction uh, being created between these kinds of genres. Persian music developed in its own trajectory and tradition, and even created a modal system that was some, somewhat distinct from the maqam system that was used in the West. The Persian system of modes is called to this day dastga, whereas in both Arabic and Turkish music it's still called maqam. And if you listen to Persian music today, you'll find that it is quite distinct from Arabic and Turkish music, the later two of which are while of course having individual characteristics and, and unique features, are a lot more similar to each other than they are to Persian music. This is at least in my opinion. In any case, let's not dwell on these things for too long, but this is an interesting example to show that many of the sort of cultural distinctions and things like that that we experience today often have very clear political 
or social reasons or backgrounds that we don't often think about. As I've just mentioned, the rule or period of the Safavid and Qajar dynasties in Iran or Persia is very important for the development of what we know as Persian classical music today. The art of the Shi'i Safavid dynasty is a source of endless fascination. It showcases some of the most mind-boggling and beautiful architecture in the in history of the world. For example, the just incredible mosques in Isfahan, for example. And when we look at other visual art from this period, we find, for example, very beautiful paintings depicting musicians playing their instruments, which paints the picture of a thriving court music culture in Safavid Persia. Strangely, in spite of this, not a lot of research has been done on the music of the Safavid period. In other words, it is a quite an understudied field, at least and especially in the Western or English-speaking academic world. There is one book written by the musicologist Owen Wright called Music Theory in the Safavid Era, which translates a text from the period and explores this culture through it. But other than this, there isn't a lot to go on when it comes to Western academic literature in English. But it seems clear that this period brought us some very significant developments. Just like in other parts of the Islamic world, inspiration was drawn here from the writings of Safiya Din al-Urmawi, as well as the native Persian Abdul Qadr al-Marari and their systematization of music theory. Again, as mentioned, it is the periods of the Safavids and later Qajars that we see a gradual movement away from the more tightly knit musical culture of medieval times, and thus a stronger separation between Arabic, Turkish, and Persian music brought on by, at least partly, by imperial borders. This is true both in sound and also in things like instruments. In Persian music today, and thus in these earlier periods, instruments like the tar, the setar, the tampur, and kamenche are all very characteristic features here, as well as the oud, of course, probably originated as a Persian instrument called the barbat. The music of Iran today is a direct result of the developments that took place during the Safavid and Qajar dynasties, uh, which in itself, of course, were developed from earlier traditions still. The musical scene of Iran and its neighboring regions today is a thriving musical scene that has produced some of the most noteworthy and inspirational singers and musicians working today in the musical world. If we then move even further to the west and to the Indian subcontinent, we realize that here music was also a very significant part of both everyday life and religious practices. In fact, even prior to Mughal times, some of the main musical genres and traditions had already started to be developed in this region. Taking inspiration from the developing tradition in the Western Islamic world and writers like Al-Urmawi, but also, of course, the native musical culture in India, there developed a very characteristic and unique form of music or different forms of music uh, in this context. And of course, like in many other regions at this time, the Sufis played a major part in this development. One of the most significant figures of the late medieval context is the famous poet and musician Amir Khusro. He was a student of the great Sufi saint Nizamuddin Awliya and belonged to the Shishti order of Sufism. The Shishti order, or Shishtiya, had developed largely in India and become one of the most prominent tariqas in that region, and remains so until today. 
Just like the Mevlevi order, the Shishtis have placed a large emphasis on music, or sama, as a religious practice. And with some of the earliest figures of the order, like Amir Khusro, they developed different forms of Sufi music, all inspired by local Indian traditions. Indeed, Amir Khusro himself is attributed with inventing many instruments and musical genres, including the most significant and popular form of Sufi music called Qawwali. Whether it is in fact true or not that he invented all of these things is of course hard to say. A lot of it is probably more legendary than based in actual historical truth, but it shows you the very important uh, importance of Amir Khusro in the tradition of uh, Sufi or Islamic music on the Indian subcontinent. His poems are still sung in Qawwali performances today, and there are regular Qawwali ceremonies at his tomb also performed at this very uh, moment. Maybe not, but at, at least today this is still happening regularly. Qawwali is still a very popular form of music today and it has been made famous even in the West by singers like Nusrat Fatali Khan in the 20th century. And all of this goes back originally to the Shishti order. It has, as mentioned, a very characteristic Indian sound and often includes instruments like the harmonium and tabla percussion, but it is heavily focused on vocal performance of different Sufi poems. It's a vocal form of music primarily, but it is accompanied by these instruments like the harmonium, which is almost like, it looks almost like an accordion, but it's quite different at the same time, and and different forms of percussion like the tabla. You can watch Kowali performances on YouTube. There's a bunch of it. It's it's very uh, fascinating and, and still a thriving musical genre around the world. Of course, other Sufi orders in India also partook in different musical ceremonies, with the possible exception of the Naqshbandi order, which we've talked about in a previous video. But the Kowali genre of music is primarily associated with the Shishti order. And similar to the Ottoman case, but perhaps not to the same degree, the music of the Sufis affected the general music scene in India as well. During Mughal times, the Shishti order and their Sama ritual was very influential, and they were sometimes quite close to the court, even though the Shishti order has usually maintained a kind of um, non-political, disassociated attitude towards these things. But for example, some sources indicate that the Emperor Akbar was a Shishti devotee. But as is often the case, this practice and music generally has also faced some opposition. The more puritanical emperor Aurangzeb, more associated with the Naqshbandi order, is said to have forbidden music for a while during his rule. Now, some recent scholarship have shown that this might not actually be entirely true, but it shows that the practice has sometimes been controversial. But still, Qawwali and the music of the Sufis in India has been a significant factor on the subcontinent since and is an important part in the puzzle of music in the larger Islamic world. When it comes to the most western parts of the Islamic world, places like what is known as the Maghrib, which is western North Africa, we're talking Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, even here there is further diversity, of course. The Ottoman Empire ruled much of the Arabic-speaking world and much of North Africa, but not all of it. So parts of the Maghrib were often outside of Ottoman control, which created 
you know, even though within the Ottoman Empire there was diversity, this creates an even more uh, diverse picture. The musical culture of the Maghrib has always had a very unique character. As we talked about in part one, figures, early figures like Ziryab instigated a musical tradition and culture in the Maghrib and in Andalusia that was uh, that flourished and which survives even to this day. There developed sophisticated forms of music composition here as well, like the already mentioned Nuba Suite, which also includes various sections in the same musical mode, much like the Ayin of the Mevlevi um, context or the Fasil in the more secular courtly music of the Ottomans. So the, the, the same kind of suite, which in North Africa and the Maghreb was called Nuba, um, had a similar sophisticated structure, but was also quite different at the same time. It had local and regional characteristics. The Nuba suite includes, again, improvisations, vocal as well as instrumental music. The vocal compositions often revolve around characteristic poetic forms in the region, like the Muwasha form of poetry, for example. Of course, during Ottoman times, it was impossible for this region to not be somewhat influenced by what was going on further east in places like Istanbul, but the Maghreb still managed to retain a very characteristic and unique flavor in their musical culture. Even things like the modes or the maqams used are sometimes different traditionally. I think I mentioned in part one that in the music of the Western world, so North Africa and Andalusia, there isn't as much use of quarter notes or microtones, uh, sometimes not at all actually, whereas in the more eastern parts, that stuff is a lot more common. So when we listen to music from this region, we can often hear a clear difference from what was going on further east. Recurring instruments here include the omnipresent oud, but also percussion instruments like the riq and the bowed instrument known as rabab. But secular or classical music is of course not all that came out of this region. Just like everywhere else, these Sufis and their music played an important role here. Much of Maghribi music can be said to be a kind of synthesis between Arabic and thus partly Persian music as well as the traditions of the local Berber tribes. A clear indication of this is the very famous Gnawa genre of music, which is very common in Morocco and the Maghrib generally. This style of music is very strongly associated with Sufism and has been used in many Sufi contexts throughout history, but have its origins most likely outside. Much like in India, for example, we should look at these developments as natural. Muslims took inspiration from local cultural traditions and incorporated them into their own practices. This is always what happens. Gnawa music has a very unique sound, which employs characteristic instruments like the sintir or gimbri, a three-stringed plucked lute, as well as a percussion instrument called krakebs. Of course, the Islamic world is very large and there's no way for me to cover everything. There are distinct musical traditions in West Africa, places like Senegal and the Gambia as well. There are distinct musical traditions in Sudan. Uh, I haven't talked at all about the music, uh, the fantastic music of the Kurds, for example, partly due to my own ignorance on the subject, but all of that will have to wait for another day. What we can say as a conclusion is that cultures, and thus music, is always evolving. These musical practices did not look the same in 900 as they did in 1600, and they continue to develop and change even today. 
in the last century of the Ottoman Empire, so the 19th century, for example, there was increasing cultural contact with the Western world, so Europe, for example, sometimes friendly, sometimes not. But in any case, this resulted in an increased uh, inspiration taken um, from European musical tradition, for example, which then entered the Ottoman world and the Middle East generally. In this way, Western music theory, as well as compositional techniques, made their way into Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and so on music, and has affected the way that that music functions and sounds today. Egypt, of course, had a particularly flourishing music scene in the 20th century with great Western-style orchestras playing compositions by great composers like Muhammad Abdul Wahab and often sung by famous singers like Umm Kulthum or Fayrouz. But this is nothing new, as I hope this series has shown you. The musical culture of the wider Islamic world has always been one of exchange and development. The Arabs took inspiration from the Persians and vice versa. The Berber tribes in North Africa and the Spaniards influenced the wider musical culture of Andalusia. And some of the greatest periods of flourishing and musical development has been when these cultures and varied traditions have come together to inspire each other. And such is indeed the case today as well, with our increased globalization in terms of communication, for example. Composers in the wider Middle East and the Islamic world are taking inspiration from their own native musical cultures and this vast history that we've been talking about, but also from influences around the world. In other words, the story of music in the Islamic world is far from over. I'll see you next time. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.